Jacob has spent 20 years working for his uncle Laban, who is also now his father-in-law. He is married to two of Laban's daughters, who, with the help of their handmaids, have provided him with 11 sons and a daughter. He has thrived financially in Haran, turning Laban's schemes against him and massively increasing the size of his flocks. Now, realising that Laban might never let him live as a free man, Jacob has gathered up his wives, children, their sheep, their goats and all their possessions and made a break for freedom. Jacob doesn't know that his wife Rachel has spirited away her father's pagan idols and hidden them in her saddlebags, and now Laban and his sons are in pursuit. It's not just his gods Laban wants back. He sees Rachel and Leah and the children as his too. He and his sons move fast, and Jacob is only as quick as his slowest child. Inevitably, the pursuers catch up, and Jacob is forced to turn and face. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 10, Forbidden Love. Incredibly, we're already at Episode 10, and we're still in the book of Genesis. Thank you so much for bearing with us in what is the most ambitious project I personally have ever undertaken. And thanks for all your feedback. It all helps to make this a better podcast. If you've only just jumped on and have simply hit latest episode, this is the Bible minus the religion. No church is paying for this and you will not be told what to believe, just what other people believe, among them Jews, Muslims and Christians. The Bible I refer to is the new international version, UK edition, published by Zondervan. Their fabulous notes have made this podcast much easier. You might also be wondering where I get the nuggets of information that surround the bare bones of the Bible narrative. The answer is simple. It's where any sane person gets their facts, that fount of dependable information that is the internet. And, as this is the 10th episode, I'm putting a list of every website, book and useful human who has helped me pull these together in the episode notes. But now, let's see what happens in the showdown between Jacob and Laban. Before he catches up with Jacob, Genesis describes how God appears to Laban in a dream and warns him to guard his tongue when speaking to his son-in-law. However, when they reach Jacob's tent, the older man can't help himself and aims both barrels of his fury at his younger adversary. Laban accuses his nephew of deceiving him and carrying away his daughters like prisoners of war. Had he known that the family was leaving, he would have given them a properly celebratory send-off, he says. Instead, he was unable to even kiss his grandchildren or daughters goodbye. Laban warns Jacob that he could harm him if he wanted and is only holding back because Jacob's God told him to rein it in. Grudgingly, he accepts that Jacob might want to return to his family, but what he can't understand is why Jacob has run off with his gods. Jacob is honest. He was worried that Laban would take his wives away from him, which is why he left in secret. However, if his uncle can find anyone among his party who has his gods, he is free to kill them. Clearly, Jacob has no idea that Rachel has squirrelled away his father's treasure, and the jeopardy in this particular story ratchets up considerably. 
Jacob and his wives each have their own tents, and after searching Jacob's and Leah's, no loot is uncovered. This is because Rachel has taken the idols and placed them inside her camel's saddle, which she's using as a seat in her tent. Because she is sitting on Laban's gods, he finds nothing when he searches her tent. As tricky as her father, Rachel tells him that she's on her period. As she's unclean and can't be approached, the search is called off. Jacob is furious at the accusation. He feels wrongly hunted down and frisked like a criminal. He asks Laban to produce anything that he has found of his so that both groups of relatives can decide whether or not he has acted fairly. He tells Laban that he has worked for him for 20 years. In that time, none of Laban's animals have miscarried, nor have any of his rams turned up on Jacob's table. Any sheep or goats that were taken by predators or thieves were paid for out of his own pocket, he says. He endured heat by day and cold by night, and often didn't sleep. In 20 years of hard labour, his wages were changed 10 times, and if God had not been with him, Laban would have sent him away empty-handed. Jacob is confident that God has seen his struggle and believes that this is why God warned Laban not to engage with him when he caught up with him. Laban is having none of it. As he sees it, the women are his, the children are his and the flocks are his. Suggesting a compromise, he asks Jacob to sign a binding agreement between them so that everyone knows exactly where they stand. Clearly keen to move on from this and possibly not wanting a war with his in-laws, Jacob takes a stone and sets it up as a pillar. He tells his relatives to pile some rocks in a heap and Laban announces that the rocks should serve as a witness to their agreement. The place is given the name Mizpah, which means watchtower, and later becomes a significant religious centre for Israel. Laban shares his hope that God keeps watch on the two families while they are apart and warns Jacob that if he mistreats either Leah or Rachel, God is their witness. How much of this religiosity he expects to be credible, given that he has just journeyed seven days to recover his pagan idols, is uncertain. Laban declares the pile of stones to be a border, which neither of them are to cross in order to harm one another, adding his hope that the God of Abraham and his brother Nahor, as well as the God of their father, will judge between them. Jacob, on the other hand, swears to God, sacrifices one of his animals and shares the food with everyone. Early the next morning, Laban kisses his grandchildren and his two daughters and sets off back to Haran, never to bother the Bible again. Having just confronted Laban, Jacob continues his journey west. He knows he must inevitably cross paths with the brother who he betrayed years earlier. But on his way, he is confronted with a man who also wants to fight him. As he and his family journey back to Canaan, Jacob encounters what he believes is a group of angels and names the place Manaheim, which means Camp of God. Twenty years have passed since he fled his brother Esau, and, worried at what awaits him, he sends messages into Edom to see how the land lies. The men are to tell Esau that Jacob has plenty of livestock and servants, and that he wants to make peace. The disconcerting message that comes back is that Esau is on his way out to meet him with a posse of 400 men. Jacob is now terrified. 
He is under no illusion as to the fury felt by his brother when he learned that he had been tricked out of their father's blessing. Now, Jacob feels that vengeance is about to meet him head on. Concerned about the welfare of his family, he splits his party into two groups. The thinking is that if there is an attack, at least one part of his family might escape. With no other power or protection to hand, Jacob prays. He tells God that he feels unworthy of the kindness and faithfulness which he has shown him so far, a refreshingly honest appraisal of his own failings. He thanks God for providing for him. He crossed the River Jordan on his way to Haran with nothing but the staff in his hand, and now he is returning with so much wealth that his entourage can be divided into two camps. He begs God to protect him, his wives and children from Esau's rage, reminding God of the promise made to him that his descendants will one day outnumber the grains of sand on the shore. To soften his brother up a little, Jacob takes a considerable number of his sheep, goats, camels and donkeys, splits them into separate herds and sends them off, each with a servant at its head. He staggers the animal's departure, possibly hoping that the gradual increase of gifts will have the effect of diffusing Esau's anger. When the first herd arrives, the servant leading it is to tell Esau that the animals are a gift to him from Jacob, who he is to describe as Esau's servant. The leader of the second consignment is to repeat the message, and so on, until all four herds have arrived in Edom. In all, around 600 animals are set aside as a peace offering. Meanwhile, Jacob sets up camp for the night. When night falls, Jacob leads his wife and children across the river before heading back alone, possibly to give himself some time to reflect on a difficult day ahead. At this point, Genesis describes a man who grabs Jacob and starts wrestling him. It's an unexpected interruption, but one which Jacob throws himself into with gusto, and the two men fight until morning. In fact, Jacob battles so enthusiastically that his opponent can only overcome him with foul play. He touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it, ending the contest there and then. Even after this, Jacob continues to cling on to the man and only agrees to release him in exchange for a blessing. It's an unusual request to make to an opponent in a fight, and the suggestion is that Jacob senses his nemesis is more divine than human. Jacob is asked his name, and is told that, from now on, he will be called Israel, as he has struggled with both men and God, and has still pulled through. The name Israel is believed to mean struggles with God. The man refuses to tell Jacob his own name, but Jacob is no fool. He recognises that he has been fighting with God in the form of an angel. The message is clear. After betraying his brother Esau and falling out with his uncle Laban, Jacob has certainly had his fair share of battles. In order to prevail and enter the land promised to his grandfather Abraham, he must stop struggling and accept that he is dependent on God. Only then can he receive divine approval. Jacob names the location of his epic wrestling contest Peniel, which means face of God, as he believes that he has seen God face to face. The encounter may leave Jacob with a limp, but it is an enormous event in Jewish history. 
This is the birth of the Jewish nation and the idea of Israel as a people rather than a place. The name given to Jacob at a ford some 20 miles north of the Dead Sea lives on in the nation-state that is still seen as the spiritual home for the world's 15 million Jews. Having struggled to overpower the angel, it's finally time for Jacob to face the music with his twin. As he approaches his brother's land, he sees Esau coming towards him with his army. In an act of self-preservation for his family, Jacob places his female servants with their children at the front of his party, followed by his second best wife Leah and her children, while Rachel and Joseph take up the rear. Jacob goes on ahead and when he reaches Esau, he bows to the ground seven times. Esau's reaction is unexpected. Instead of giving Jacob the bashing he deserves, he runs up to his twin, flings his arms around him and kisses him. No doubt surprised at seeing so many young people standing behind his brother, Esau wants to know who everyone is and Jacob's answer is that they are the children who God has given him. After all the mothers and children have bowed down to Esau, he wants to know why so much livestock has arrived at his property. Jacob is honest. It was to set him in a more favourable light with his brother. Esau is magnanimous, telling Jacob that he already has plenty of animals of his own and that he should take them back. Jacob insists on the gift, describing Esau's warm welcome as like seeing the face of God. He has plenty of livestock thanks to God's generosity, he says, and, convinced that his brother won't take no for an answer, Esau accepts. Esau wants his brother to stay at his home, but Jacob tells him that he needs to travel at his own slow pace with the livestock and children, and that he will catch him up later. Esau wants to leave some of his men with him, but Jacob is happy just knowing that they are friends again. As invitation rejections go, it's hugely respectful and a far cry from how Jacob treated his brother when they were younger. Finally, Jacob and his entourage pull up near the city of Shechem, where he pitches his tents and builds an altar on a plot of land which he buys. He names the property El Elohe Israel, which is Hebrew for Israel's God is mighty, a tiny outpost of enormously relieved believers who can finally set about building their own nation. If anyone has ever felt outnumbered in a family, it has to be Dinah, the single daughter of Jacob and sister to 11 brothers. Tragically, she is involved in an event that casts a shadow on her family and forces them to leave their new home. Dinah is Jacob's 10th child, born between Zebulun and Joseph, and she is somewhat of an enigma. On a visit to meet some local women, she has an encounter with a Canaanite prince called Shechem. What actually happens remains a mystery. In some accounts, Dinah is raped, in others defiled, in others humbled by Shechem. The event might have been an act of violence, with Dinah being taken against her will, or it might equally have been a romantic tryst. In the Genesis account, Shechem loves her, speaks tenderly to her, and begs his father to let him marry her. Jacob clearly doesn't hear about the liaison from Shechem or his father, as the first news that reaches him is that his daughter has been defiled. He sits tight, waiting for his sons to return from the fields so that they can discuss as a family what they should do. 
Shechem and his father Hamor arrive at the house at the same time as Dinah's brothers, and, whatever the truth behind the affair, the men are outraged. They believe that the act brings shame upon their family and that Shechem must pay for sleeping with their sister. Hamor appears oblivious to the situation. His son has set his heart on marrying Dinah, he tells them. He paints a bright future. The marriage sets in train a utopia where his and Jacob's children can marry one another on a regular basis and Jacob's family can settle properly in the region and buy land there. Shechem begs Jacob and his sons to accept him and promises to pay whatever they ask in exchange for Dinah. He just wants to marry her. However, Dinah's brothers still see the affair as a huge affront to the family and decide to take matters into their own hands. Despite their rage, they manage to keep a poker face and appear to accept the proposal. Shechem can marry their sister, but on the condition that he and his men are circumcised. Marrying someone who hasn't had the procedure would bring disgrace to their family, they tell him. Only when all Shechem's men have had their foreskins removed will they be content to intermarry and become one people. Hamor and Shechem appear delighted at such a small price to pay for Shechem's future marital bliss and the prosperity that comes from marrying into Jacob's clearly wealthy family. The men convene a meeting of the city's elders where they assure everyone that this is a great opportunity for them all. There is plenty of space for Jacob's people and once the families come together they will share in Jacob's wealth. Agreeing that circumcision is no great inconvenience for such a bright future, every man in Shechem's clan goes under the knife. Three days later, while the men are still sore and unable to fight, Jacob's sons wreak their revenge. Simeon and Levi strike the city, attacking and killing every man. After slaying Hamor and Shechem, they grab their sister and leave. The other brothers then loot the city, taking all the flocks, herds and pack animals they can find, both in the city and out in the fields. They round up the women and children and bring them, along with all the wealth they can plunder, back to their camp. Jacob is deeply unsettled at what his sons have done. His family is small and vastly outnumbered by the Canaanites, who may now see him as a troublemaker. If things turn ugly and the tribes come together to fight him, he and his sons will not be able to defend themselves. The feeling is that if any punishment were needed, the vengeance handed out by his sons has vastly outweighed Shechem's crime and justice has been overdone. The brothers remain unrepentant. To them, Shechem treated their sister like a prostitute and his family got what they deserved. Just when things were beginning to look settled for Jacob, adversity has come his way again. Suddenly vulnerable, he knows that he cannot remain anywhere near Shechem. The family retreats and the book of Genesis begins to build to its epic finale as one last hero steps into the spotlight. 
Jacob's 11th son may be known for the multicolored coat gifted to him by his father, but the account of his rift and reconciliation with his brothers is one of the most gripping and emotional page turners in the entire Bible. His story is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield for Sleeping Dog, with music by Michael Old and additional production by Johnny Hawkins. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Send any comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com. Hold up. 